Hey everybody, this is a kind of bonus episode within our bonus season. We interrupt our summer mini-series of Seen on Radio rebroadcasts to bring you something else, a recent episode of Hot Take, the essential and wicked smart podcast from Crooked Media about the climate crisis. The show is co-hosted by our pal Amy Westervelt, the terrific climate journalist who worked with me on our season five series, The Repair, and her co-host, the climate writer, Mary Anais Hegler. They pack each episode with information and analysis to help listeners understand what's really going on with the climate emergency and maybe how to respond. This conversation they had with the writer David Wallace-Wells picks up and expands on some themes from our Season 5 series, including that question of how to balance the sober reality on the ground and in the atmosphere with the kind of hope we need to keep fighting for change. Here's that hot take episode. They called it Total Moral Disaster. And welcome to Hot Take. I'm Amy Westervelt. And I'm Mary Anise Hegler. And today we're going to take a look at how the COVID-19 pandemic influenced the way we talk about climate change. Uh, I don't know why you're using the past tense there, Mary. <laughs> pretty, pretty, pretty pandemic-y still up in here. <laughs> I know, I know. It's just wishful thinking, like all the airlines. But at the same time, when the pandemic kicked off, the media kind of did start acting like the climate crisis ended. So... Oh, yeah. I remember that. Because apparently the media thinks people can't hold two existential threats in our minds at the same time, even though we're living through like three at once. <laughs> I mean, just counting conservatively. Also, side eyes and black woman. Yeah. And so, yeah, we're going to get into all of that with our guest today, David Wallace-Wells. Yes, we had David on back at the beginning of the pandemic. And since then, he's gone on to do a ton of COVID coverage. So it'll be really interesting to talk to him two years plus later. Oh, my God. It's been two years? Yes. Yes. And somehow we've managed to age without maturing. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, my God. Yay, us. David Wallace-Wells, welcome back to Hot Take. Really glad to talk to you guys. I'm really excited about it. Thanks for having me. Of course. So you are the editor at New York Magazine, but you're soon moving to the New York Times. Is that right? Yeah, actually, you've got me in like the one week between jobs. So probably by the time anyone's listening to this, I'll be already moved to the Times starting next week. Yeah. That's exciting. Yeah. Thanks. Yeah. What are you going to be up to over there? I'm going to be writing a weekly newsletter as part of the opinion section, um, which is going to be focused on climate, but not um, exclusively about climate. Those something like half or maybe a little less than half, it's not totally clear um, of those pieces are going to run as print columns in the print magazine. They'll also show up, you know, this is inside baseball stuff, but they'll also show up in the on the app and on the website as regular columns. So the to the, you know, the average reader won't be look different than something that Michelle Goldberg or Ross Douthat writes or something. And then um, I'm supposed to do a couple big like cover story kind of pieces for the magazine every year. And I'm hoping beyond that to do other things um, in other parts of the newspaper too. So maybe some stuff for Sunday Review, maybe some stuff for the book review, maybe some podcasting, who knows. But in general, 
it's a bit of a like blank check, right? Would you like invitation, which it's hard to pass up when the platform is the New York Times and so many people read it and so many people around the world take it so seriously. So hoping that I'll be as independent as I imagine I'll be as it actually unfolds. But um, at the moment, at the outset, it feels like um, sort of an ideal setup to me, at least. Well, David, we will be happy to have you on when you leave the New York Times <laughs> for censorship. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> I'll count, I'll be counting you, don't worry. Yeah. <laughs> so when we had you back on, it was the early days of the COVID pandemic, and we were talking about how people were coming to us since we had backgrounds in climate change and being like, so what's the deal with the pandemic? And we were all like, I don't know. I'm just as scared as you are. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Do you remember that? It's been a crazy couple of years. It's hard. In some ways, it feels like two months ago that we last talked. And in other ways, like, mm-hmm. you know, a whole nother lifetime. Well, and you've gone on to actually cover COVID quite a bit since then, too. So I'm, I imagine it's hard to remember not knowing that much about it. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, I think the weird thing about it is that it's unlike what we may have thought at the very outset of the pandemic, it's, you know, probably not going to ever leave us. So I can't remember not knowing about COVID and I may never for the rest of my life not be thinking about COVID. Um, And that's on some level also how I feel about, you know, my own climate awakening. I think it's how a lot of people feel about climate change. So I'm sure we heard you talk about parallels. That's one of like a billion (laughs) parallels and contrasts to draw. If the pandemic ended tomorrow and, like, COVID was wiped off the face of the earth tomorrow, I would think about this for the rest of my entire life. (laughs) This has just been such a huge trauma, so. Yeah, I think it's, in a weird way, even though it's on some level the only thing that we've been talking about for a couple of years, or, like, the, the biggest thing that we've been talking about for a couple of years, I think we also, very few of us, maybe even none of us, really, like, have been able to wrap our heads around what happened, what we went through, and... Um, I do think we're all going to be sort of like reckoning with that, what it revealed about us, what it revealed about our politics, um, what it changed about us, what it changed about our interpersonal relationships, how it both reflected our intuitive sense of risk and also will be shaping our future sense of risk going forward. I think it's, it's really, really quite profound and will be quite profound at sort of every level of social and political organization from the smallest individual unit all the way up to our geopolitics. And, you know, I, I, the last piece I wrote for New York Magazine before I left was on, you, you know, looking at this um, particular approach to calculating COVID mortality called excess mortality, which is basically like, very simply, you count or estimate the number of people who died in a year, and then you compare it to the average over the you know years before the pandemic. So it's a sort of a catch-all statistic that doesn't depend on how much testing you're doing or the age skew of your population or that sort of thing. And in that piece, I was sort of just stumbled on the fact that among the large countries of the world, the country that had the worst pandemic was Russia, um, which is like, a, you know, mm. it's, it's just another reminder that these are like climate change. These are not stories or disruptions that can be compartmentalized or, you know, segmented off from the rest of our lives or um, that they are they are just sending constant shockwaves through everything else that we want to preserve as normal, even, you know, as it gets harder and harder to do that. Yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah, we definitely want to get into some more of that later. But before we do, I just have a quick question. How can you tell if it's a dogwood tree? (laughs) It's just like a bad pun that's coming to slap smack me in the face. I have no idea. (laughs) 
Okay, first of all, my puns are amazing. <laughs> well, Mary, you know that when someone says a pun is bad, they mean that it's good. There's no such thing as, you know, it's it's the same word, actually, when it comes to puns. Okay, you're stalling. <laughs> What's the, what is it again, Mary? Repeat the question. Um, how, how can you tell if it's a dogwood tree? I give up. <sighs> oh, the bark. Exactly. Pretty good. Amy, right? I actually Amy got, got it. it. Oh, you man. got it. You got it. David, you don't know. I, I'm like 0 for 100 right now. You've been trained. You've been trained. No, you're 1 for 100. <laughs> so at the, at the start of 2020, it really felt like the media was looking at the climate story differently. It was looking at it for the better. And the climate coverage numbers were way up, not where they should be, but going in the right direction. And with the school strikes and so many other mobilizations, it felt like the momentum was finally there. And then COVID came and it just plummeted. And there became this pervasive narrative that now wasn't the time to talk about climate change and all resources and attention needed to go to the pandemic. That's so crazy to me, actually, that um, I had forgotten that like the school strikes had really just started mm-hmm. to to pick up steam before the yeah. pandemic got going. Oof. Yeah. But I do. I remember us talking about how like if I were going to engineer you know, poking a hole in the balloon of the youth climate movement, it would be that pandemic. Right. <laughs> well, not just not just the cl- youth climate movement. It felt, you know, bigger than that. I mean, I think that that was one of the yeah. driving forces for climate awareness, climate, you know, a sense of climate urgency and climate commitment. Like the, the strikers were a huge part of that story. But it was also much bigger than them. You saw hypocritical corporate leaders and prime ministers and presidents who, you know, were feeling pushed pretty quickly to, at least on the rhetorical level, relatively mm-hmm. extreme positions on climate. And we can talk about, you know, what's what's happened over the last couple of years, but it does feel considerably less front and center on the global agenda than it did back then. Yeah. And even as a lot of progress has been made over the last couple of years, I would say, but we're very much in a very in a different cultural moment. There was like a, a real high tide of climate urgency yeah. and anxiety, I would say, at that time. And now we're in a place where, you know, everybody sees it differently in, in different parts of the world, different populations have, you know, have sort of moved at different paces on this. But it seems to me, if you, if you are to generalize it, you have to say that we sort of settled into an understanding that some pretty bad climate change is baked in without having the same anger or or anxiety about it that we had a couple of years ago before the pandemic. It's been sort of a period of normalization, you know. Yeah, I think that's yeah. right and it's um it's concerning, you know. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. It's kind of like the pandemic usurped climate change as the big existential threat, right? Like it became the thing that threatens all of us and therefore the thing that we all need to like drop everything to work on. And climate change had just gotten that type of recognition Mm. starting in 2018. So it just like had one year where it felt like the most important thing. And that one year happened to be while the country was being run by Trump. So, yeah, of course not. They're (laughs) pouring gasoline on the fire. (laughs) And like once COVID comes around, climate reporters start getting taken off the climate beat. And this is like right after so many outlets were like in 2019, we're really going to cover the climate story. We mean it this time. And then the pandemic comes along. And they're just like, nope, you're going to go cover the COVID beat because they both deal with numbers and science in some way. Um, You know, I remember having a really hard time pitching climate stories anywhere. And 
yeah. David, it seems like you actually did float into the COVID beat for a while. You were kind of COVID and climate for a second there. I'm wondering if there are any interesting trends you saw or questions that you came across that surprised you. On what on what side of it? How do you mean? All sides of it, actually. <laughs> but I guess more going into COVID from climate. Like, was it hard for you to pick up that story, for example? You know, it was the only thing that I was thinking about for a period of a couple of months. Um, and I think in that way, I was not unusual, even just in the, you know, the general public. I think it was, it was a quite overwhelming and onrushing experience to be dragged from a sense of normalcy into a regular daily, like, panic state. And as a result, stories started suggesting themselves, areas of inquiry started suggesting themselves. And it was, to me, sort of a, just a, a great, great piece of luck that I'm, you know, I'm a journalist. I can like call up somebody and actually get them to answer my phone calls and actually get them to answer my questions. This is like really pretty great if there's this complicated, confusing, in some ways mysterious contagion that's spreading. And there are some people who understand it better than others, but they're not the people who are like front and center in front of the public. And so in that sense, it felt pretty comfortably parallel. I understand all the ways in which you're saying it feels so distinct and and weird that anyone would have the expectation that one could jump from an expertise in one to an expertise in the other. But it didn't seem that hard for me to do or unusual to do. And I did right from the start think a lot about the lessons that the pandemic had for the story of climate change and, and the way that we think about it and the way that we respond to it, the way that we prepare or fail to prepare. And, you know, I had a number of different frameworks that I used in thinking in making those comparisons over the course of the past couple of years. And some of them were more encouraging and some of them were more dispiriting. And we can talk about them sort of one by one if that's useful. But the one that I come back to now, two plus years in, is that, you know, in early 2021, the IMF published this study that said that it would cost $50 billion to vaccinate the entire world and that the payback, the return on that investment by just 2025 would be $9 trillion. So it would be something like a hundredfold payback in four years' time for, by the standards of the U.S. budget, or even by the standards of the U.S. pandemic response, was a trifling sum of $50 billion. Mm-hmm. And we didn't do it. And we didn't even think seriously about doing it. And we didn't even debate it. And it may be the case that those numbers are a little off, like it may have been a little more complicated, a little more expensive than $50 billion, And maybe the payback wouldn't have been quite as, you know, large as they estimated, especially because you know, variants and all that stuff. But the basic idea that we had the tools that we needed to protect the whole world, we had the money to spend to to make that investment, we knew that we would be swimming in the returns, even if you were just looking at the returns within the borders of the United States, the U.S. share of those global returns would have been significant enough that it would have made it a laughably easy investment if you were making those choices from a strict cost-benefit perspective. And yet we basically, as a culture, as a country, and as a collection of like-minded countries, that is to say like the wealthy OECD countries, we weren't even interested in trying to do that. We basically got excited about this miraculous technology, these vaccines which work incredibly well. And then as soon as we got them ourselves, we were just over providing anything for the rest of the world. And when I say we, I don't mean like, every single American or every single Brit, I literally mean like 
into the mm-hmm. arms of the people who are thinking about this stuff. Because in all of these countries, there were mm-hmm. tons of people who weren't all that well-protected, um, all that well-vaccinated. And we sort of turned our backs on them too and started thinking in the wealthy parts of the world that um, if, you weren't, uh, if you weren't vaccinated, that you know your death was your fault or whatever. Mm. And in all of those ways, I just felt the pandemic was teaching us a really, really ugly lesson about the way that we defined progress and possibility almost exclusively through an individual model of risk Mm -hmm. and safety. And that any Mm -hmm. approach that extended beyond just securing my own personal well-being was not just too much to ask, but it was almost like, this gets me to like some ugly places when I start thinking about it, but I I start thinking, it's like, is there something that makes rich people in rich countries happy to see poor people in poor countries suffering and dying. Mm. Like, mm. why Why wouldn't we pursue a global vaccination strategy? We would all be better off. Right, right. Like, what wh- what possible explanation could there be at, a, like, a fundamental psychological level yeah. for failing to make that investment? You know, it wasn't a big upfront cost. The returns were ginormous compared to the upfront cost. They would come back to benefit even the rich people who made the investment. Like, it's not it, – there was – you didn't need to make the argument on humanitarian grounds at all. And yet we were just, we didn't even sniff around that project. <laughs> we were just like, mm-hmm. no, so long as like everybody I know in, you know, Manhattan is vaccinated and we don't need to worry about, you know, taking those next steps. And it's just, when you when you apply that same framework to the climate crisis, it's really depressing. It's also just sort of eerily similar <laughs> to the way that we've been proceeding to this yeah. point, um, which is like, there is progress. That's It's true. We're making progress in a, in a number of different ways, both on the mitigation and adaptation front. But, you know, if you're hoping that that progress and that protection is going to extend to like the seven or eight or 10 billion people on the planet who are facing these challenges, that's a that's a huge leap that I think we're, we're very, very far from making. I think it's it seems everything, given everything we know about climate progress, sort of foolish to expect anything like that to happen. What a, I don't know, what a disaster. What a moral disaster. Yeah. Really was expecting you to say shit show. (laughs) 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 Yeah, I mean, you know, on some level it's like, but then it was always thus, right? It's like, it makes me wonder if I was naive to ever expect anything different. Mm. And that's like, you know, one of my first, I think we may have even talked about this when we talked a couple of years ago about the pandemic. One of my first feelings about the pandemic response was for all its imperfections, the world changed really quickly. The world, like, Mm -hmm. you know, the world, we buckled in, we bunkered down. And, you know, in a lot of ways that maybe in retrospect, we would have liked to make those choices differently, design those, you know, responses differently. But like the scale of the response was huge and the speed of the response was by global standards, almost instantaneous. And Mm -hmm. there was part of me that in that early phase of the pandemic was thinking, okay, yes, we have some incredibly, not just incompetent leaders, not just in the US, um, but all around the world, but also leaders who who were, you know, to some degree sociopathic. Um, these were these are not the people you'd want to have in power when the entire planet was facing generationally unprecedented crisis. Um, and yet, mm-hmm. even in that, even despite our political problems and our geopolitical problems, we, we basically spent a couple of months there in the spring of 2020 taking global collective action to protect one another. And mm-hmm. I found that pretty inspiring. And I found it inspiring for climate too and hoped, you know, maybe we could learn from this. Um, but I think 
what we've been through over the last couple of years, you know, it just makes it seem pretty clear to me, at least, that, you know, as I was saying before, that the, the big story here is normalization and that, you know, we, we came to define much more suffering and death from the pandemic as acceptable and indeed even normal, especially if it was distant from us, distant ideologically, distant internationally, whatever it was. Um, mm-hmm. And how quickly that happened, how quickly we went from being like, oh, my God, a thousand people died to, yeah. oh, look, a million people died <laughs> in the U.S. Yeah, I have no clue. Right. You know, I don't know what you think of this. I'm totally, um, I'm just thinking out loud. So if you think I'm way off base, please tell me. I've been looking at this over, the, especially the last year or so, I would say, as like, um, like a real fundamental flaw in the social contract, particularly in the U.S. But I also feel like like America's worst slashed, like most impactful export has been this flavor of individualism. You know, maybe I'm being too hard on on the U.S., but I think that um, it was pretty unique to us for a while, and now I see it in all these other places. And I'm like, man, I really was hoping it would be the other way, that, like, the U.S. would get infected with some flavor of collectivism, <laughs> you know? Mm-hmm. But, well, it's really interesting to me. I mean, that's certainly one of these one of these stories is, like, when you think about, you know, in the U.S. on the left for a long time, we talked about um, – the social welfare states of Northern Europe, Scandinavia, as being really admirably generous and universal and, you know, you know, just enviable in almost every way. And right. when the pandemic the, hit... The bloom is off the rose of Sweden <laughs> after the pandemic. Yeah, well, say. I mean, yeah. There, there, there's that part of it, which is, yeah, <laughs> they, you know, they, they basically took almost no um, official measures at all to, to limit the spread of the disease. But there's also you know, when you get beyond or a little bit deeper than just looking at those those outlier cases, it's like all of these rich countries really failed in 2020 yeah. to protect their populations. And in the U.S., you know, we often talked about how bad our response is, how bad Trump was, and it was, and he was, of course. But we were like, depending on what metric you want to use, we were like in the zone of all the European countries. And mm-hmm. all of them were terrible here. And I think part of that has to do with what you're talking about, not just, I mean, there's the sort of general social contract, but even on a more micro level, literally like we have health systems that are essentially organized around providing for the sort of extreme end of life care of rich people (laughs) and are not nearly as robustly developed to like provide basic public health information and guidance and tools, but also meds and, and, and making sure there are hospital beds available for everyone. And like all of those things that you actually can see in some ways in poorer countries working better, we failed to deliver on, again, not just in the U.S., but in all of these countries that are sort of like culturally like the U.S. in one, in one way or another. One thing I find really interesting is thinking about the story of 2021 in contrast to the story of 2020, because in 2020... You know, before we had vaccines, basically none of the rich countries of the world did quote unquote well. You know, you could maybe make a case for Iceland, you can make a case for Finland, um, but you know, compared to what happened in in Hong Kong or South Korea or New Zealand or Australia, 
even those good, rich, wealth, you know, European countries did really poorly. And in 2021, the story was really pretty different. It was like all of the European countries got a lot of, got everybody vaccinated, or at least got all their elderly people vaccinated. And so they were able to withstand and, you know, endure, survive the pandemic much more comfortably. And in the U.S., we just didn't. (laughs) So like in the U.S., we were like in a crew of failure in 2020. And in 2021, we were like uniquely failing, despite the fact that we had basically invented these vaccines. And I, this, I know this feels like old news, like, oh, yes, American vaccination rates are low. But it is really, when you get down to it, crazy for the reason that you were talking about, Amy, which is like, this is the solution. This is how you deal with a pandemic by thinking about it in terms of individual risk. You provide people vaccines. <laughs> like, if you are a country that is obsessed with navigating the, 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 the terrain of, of, you know, disruption and disaster and, and, you know, existential threat through individual calculations of individual risk, like the vaccine is the best tool to provide to those people. Right. And yet right. we couldn't even manage to take it up at anything like our peer country's levels, even though, you know, even though it should have, it should be perfectly suited to our, our brokenness. It or should selfishness. be like, yeah. I know you're right. Yeah. But I almost feel like it, like people took it as like, as somehow being an infringement on individual freedom. It was framed as like something that you do to keep the herd healthy, you know, yeah. and, and not as something that will give you back your life. It was one of many, many, many examples in 2021, where I was like, Joe Biden thinks that we're living in a totally different era where, like, you can lean on these, you know, quote unquote, civic responsibility, you know, (laughs) of Americans to, like, do the right thing and come together. I'm like, that is just not the country you're running, sir. Yeah. Um, Look around, Mm -hmm. you know, like, look around. And I mean, on that point, I've been really struck. I don't know how you guys feel, but just... um, you know, anecdotally, socially, it's like, this is not just about like crazy Republicans in red states. It's Mm -hmm. like, I know so many liberals who spent 2020 insisting that the main goal of our lives was to protect the most vulnerable people around us. And then when the vaccines came around, they were like, people who are vulnerable, Mm -hmm. that's on them. (laughs) I'm going to go live my life. And I was like, wait, hang on, what happened here? Like, that is a crazy reversal of political principle that was processed as no reversal at all by all of them. Um, and it says something pretty ugly about our culture that's maybe even deeper than the sort of partisan divides that we obsess over so much. Yeah, I got to say, that was one of the things that scared me the most when the pandemic rolled around. Um, and I totally saw that coming because at the same time that, like, you know, the liberals were like, we're the ones who care about people and we wear masks because we care about people. And we're staying, we're socially distancing because we care about people. They were also, you know, all of these signs around town about, like, you know, if you're running without a mask on, I'll throw a television at you. You know, like, I feel like the pandemic has really damaged our the social fabric of our society. And we desperately need that if we are going to fight climate change or any other existential threat in the in the future. So, yeah, that's that's deeply concerning. And you look at like if you look at or if you remember back to coverage in the early days of the pandemic, like, you know, spring, summer 2020, there was a lot of coverage in the in the mainstream media about these um, racial and class disparities in terms of death rates. This was like a big part of the story in 2020. Mm-hmm. And 
it's basically disappeared as part of the way that people talk about the pandemic in 2021. And we've like replaced it with this incredibly ideological lens in which we talk about red COVID and the, like the death rates in red states. And, you know, again, I don't want to minimize that. Like conservative leaders have been really terrible here. It is definitely the case that conservative places, conservative states, conservative counties have lower vaccination rates and as a result, higher death rates. And that's terrible. But they're not the gaps between like the bluest states and the reddest states are not meaningfully bigger than the gaps between educational levels, between income levels and between racial groups. Like we have all of these still really deeply problematic gaps in our country. And we like choose to highlight some of them sometimes, but not in a consistent way. And I just really, it really worries me that we're turning away from those. Like, you know, there's, if there's, if there's someone who's like, poor and didn't go to college is like dramatically less likely to be vaccinated than someone who's rich and went to college. That's a really big problem that we should be trying to solve through social policy and public messaging, not just by Mm -hmm. saying, as Joe Biden, like the president of the United States, like literally said at some point, like for the unvaccinated, it's like going to be a world of pain or whatever he said. And it's like, wait, hang hang on a second. Like it's not all just Ben Shapiro out there not getting vaccinated. It's like, (laughs) There are a lot of people <laughs> exactly. who, are, who are skeptical of the public health, of healthcare in general. They, they don't have all that much experience of it because they've been deprived access. Um, right. There's so many reasons why people have failed to protect themselves in the way that we might hope that they would. And it just is so simplistic and, yeah, like just sort of dispiriting to lay it all on the feet of partisanship. That's a big problem, but it's not at all the whole problem. Exactly. And I think about that when it comes to climate change, too. It's like, yes, obviously, partisanship is a really big problem when it comes to climate action. But by the way, if Joe Manchin was a slightly different person, we'd have a different uh, we'd have a a climate bill that was a law now. A hundred percent. I feel like we've really seen that in the last couple of years. Unfortunately, that that is the big message to, I think, especially young voters right now is like Democrats won't do any better on climate. Yeah. Which is not a good message. (laughs) Yeah. It's like our whole system has been like kind of stepped on. And do you know what the grape did when it got stepped on? Oh, God, Mary. Um, Oh, did it whine? Yes. Oh, my God. It let out a little whine. Okay, you got to let the guests get some. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. (laughs) (laughs) Amy, like, you got to maybe, like, text me the answers to the next one. I I know. I will. I will. I will. Okay, no more cheating. No more cheating. I've never gotten this many ever. (laughs) So one of the things that was a constant refrain in the first few months of the pandemic was this we are the virus idea nature is healing (laughs) and Mm -hmm. all of that i guess i wonder david how you saw that narrative kind of playing out over the course of the pandemic a i think we we now know conclusively nature did not heal (laughs) (laughs) no it didn't (laughs) but i'm curious just how you kind of saw that playing out and and also, you know, where that intersects with some of these same kind of tendencies that we were just talking about, which really feel like, you know, eugenics slash ecofascism, you know, having a handshake. Yeah, um, right. you know? <laughs> so, yeah, I'm just I'm curious at what you saw as you were reporting on kind of both of these things over the past couple of years, how you saw that kind of framing evolve. Well, you know, I, I basically, in my like corner of the social media universe, I saw relatively 
quickly, though all those people making those cases, like getting dunked on and made fun of. But I do think that for the brief period when those memes were really like all over the place, um, they did teach us something. They did tell us something or a few things. Um, you know, they reminded us like how much effort is required to maintain a system that pollutes the environment to the extent that it does, that keeps, you know, wildlife out of our backyards and our back alleys and that kind of thing. That like, we are basically fighting kind of a constant war against some of these forces to allow us to live in the illusion that we live in post-natural landscapes. And letting up our guard on that just a little meant that like we did see pretty quickly some signs of like bounce back. And that just shows how how aggressively we've been fighting that war all along. And which, you know, I think a lot of people just sort of took as um, a steady, settled state of conditions rather than one that had to be routinely maintained through sort of aggressive action. And, you know, another lesson that's sort of related is like, you know, the global economy, like, really shut down for, depending on how you want to count it, like at least a couple of months and was in a diminished state for basically all of 2020. And yet Mm -hmm. emissions only fell, what, 6%? Yeah, it was like just under 6%. So yeah, (laughs) you're like, okay, so now they're saying that we need to do that every year for Mm -hmm. a decade and then accelerate at that point. I don't know how you guys feel. It's just a sort of like mind-blowing showcase of just what a big project decarbonization really is. Right. Um, well, and how systemic it needs to exactly. be. It's like, yeah, everybody was home, but they were on their devices, um, you know, using, yeah. I mean, we were still using a shitload of fossil fuels. The main thing that drove reduction in emissions was the lack of air travel. Yeah. You know, so it wasn't like people's lives in terms of emissions didn't, didn't shift that much apart from long, you know, like commuting. So if people were driving to work, that that stopped. And then um, and then the air travel thing. So yeah, I just am like, well, yeah, if if we don't have a replacement energy source, those emissions aren't gonna drop that much. (laughs) Yeah. And you know, here we are and we're now, you know, we're we're at a new emissions peak, right? And we're going to have peaks over the next couple of years and we may even have a new coal peak. (sighs) And, you know, I think this is really, really important. Like it's, you know, it may seem a little bit wonkier or like um, just like inside baseball, but it's like there is this sort of narrative out there which isn't untrue that there is progress being made. Like, and there is progress being made. Like we now think some of the worst case scenarios are probably less likely than that we thought they were a few years ago. And that's, because of, for a lot of reasons, a relatively faster decarbonization trajectory seems possible than seems possible a few years ago. But there's this eagerness, and I even feel it sometimes myself. I'd be curious to know how you guys feel to like, to like use that to be optimistic about the state of play when in fact, you know, literally we're at all time highs. And yeah, David, <laughs> you know, we don't fuck with optimism. <laughs> you know, we don't. <laughs> We stay in the rage zone. <laughs> but we're like in this, we're in this really weird rhetorical place where like, we got to talk about the good news on climate and, you know, too bad about the kids who are so anxious, you know, and going to therapy for climate and if climate reasons and all that. And yet like... What good news? I mean, we, we, 
<laughs> like, I'm sorry, but the most recent IPCC report noted that in the last decade, yeah. per capita emissions have gone up higher than they've ever fucking been. So this means that in the time of history, when we have known the absolute most about this problem and what needs to be done to solve it, we have gone in the absolute opposite direction. And like, that is, that's yeah. just the truth. And I really, yeah, I, I, and I don't say that to bum people out or suggest that people stop trying. I say that to make people fucking mad enough to do something. Like, I, I really, yeah. Yeah, Well, then if I you're know. going in that route, could I, do you mind if I briefly play the quasi optimist? Please go. Yes. Uh, oh, of course. <laughs> please. Yes. I would say that um, for a generation, the green transition, the project of decarbonization was really understood at almost all levels as um, a hard, costly project. For those who believed it was necessary, like the three of us, it was going to also be difficult and um, burdensome in a economic way, although I don't mean economic defined narrowly. I mean, you know, it's just going to make people's lives worse and they're going to have to do with less and that sort of thing. That was a quite conventional view of what real climate action would require. And, you know, there were there have been cracks in that philosophy and that view of the challenge for a while now. But I think over the last few years, the rapidly falling cost of renewable energy has really changed almost everyone's view of that dynamic in a way that is encouraging in the sense that, you know, we are at these peaks. We've done really badly given what we've known about the problem to this point. There are basically no signs of actual concrete progress in the sense of bending curves downward, although in certain countries you can see some of that progress, but at the international level, very much not. On the other hand, it is not insane, I don't think, if you're plotting the likely future of fossil fuel use over the next, you know, 50, 7,500 years to pe- feel pretty confident that it's going to decline. Yeah, I think that's true. Yeah. You know, the rate is really important. If it declines over 20 years or over 50 years or over 80 years, that really, really right. matters. But even five years ago, like, it just would have it would have felt fantastical to say we're going to get to zero here. Yeah, that's true. It would it definitely didn't feel like as definite as it does now, where you're like, this just makes financial sense to do at this point. And as a result, you have like you know all these politicians who are talking out of both sides of their mouths, yes, and who are like still subsidizing fossil fuels, yes, but like they're also giving speeches about literally going carbon neutral. And yes, carbon neutral, net zero, those are bullshit terms. All your listeners know this already. But yes, yes, <laughs> like they didn't do that five, ten years ago. And you know that means I think that we can start to think about the future in a slightly different way, which is to say, you know, we still have locked in an unconscionable level of warming. And I think it's really, really important to keep that in mind at all times. We are inevitably going to be warming beyond levels that were considered acceptable as recently as the Paris Accords. Um, that's inevitable now. And we're going to have to be dealing with the consequences of that, which is which are going to be huge. But it's also the case that we're probably not going to be looking at like five, six degrees Celsius of warming in a century. And that means that's some truly excruciating, disruptive, you know, potentially like civilization collapsing level warming is maybe not impossible, but it's just much, much, much less likely. And my own view is we need to keep both of those things in mind at the same time. And I really worry that like our culture, and I see, this is what I was talking about a few minutes ago, our culture, I see signs that our culture is already toggling to like, well, if six, five degrees is off the table, then like 
we won. Yeah. I'm seeing yes, I'm seeing I'm seeing that. I'm seeing like okay, we did it and um scrap all the emissions reductions. Let's a hun- just do 100% CDR. And I'm like, guys, come on. Yeah. <laughs> like the idea that Oh my that, gosh. Especially actually I will have to say that like one thing that gave me optimism actually also came from that same IPCC report that was pretty explicit about how bad we've done so far. That like there was a chapter in there that laid out basically like here's how modern society could work um, if we measured well-being and people's um, they call it like the decent living, decent living energy index, like this really pretty radical idea for like completely re-envisioning how um, modern society can work. And and like, that's something I can't imagine ever reading in an IPCC report. I was like, was this, is this kind of some kind of like post-capitalism visioning document? I don't understand how this got into an IPCC report. It does seem just like on a practical level that like the scientists have figured out that the, the policymakers who review, they only review the summary for policymakers. So like <laughs> yeah. they can sneak all this mm. other shit in there. They let it rip in the yeah. rest of the report. I mean, it's it's wild. But anyway, the fact that like there are a number of well-regarded researchers and enough research on all of the other ways that economies and societies could work to to make it into a very, you know, stodgy report like that is somewhat heartening to me too, that there are some indications that people are thinking beyond just plugging their shit into solar instead of coal. Yeah. Um, I want to go back to the we are the virus thing because I just every time I hear that come up, I think it's really important to emphasize that it was mostly or disproportionately black and brown people who were getting sick with the virus and the eco-fascist undertones um, of we are the virus were just like deeply, deeply concerning. And also humans have existed on this planet in harmony forever and not been a virus. Right. Um, So, yeah, I, I feel remiss to not mention that. And also, like, there's this other thing coming up now where there's all this research saying that once white people learned that it was people of color that were getting hit by the pandemic, they tuned out. And now I'm hearing these conversations that maybe we have the same problem with climate change and that we should stop talking about climate justice and, cl- and environmental justice because then it'll tip off, you know, these white people (laughs) or these rich white people that is people of color who are getting hurt. So why should I care? I have feelings about this, but (laughs) I'll, I'll let you guys go first. I'm so, I actually didn't realize that that had made its way into the climate conversation too. That's so concerning. But I mean, I think, I don't think it's a, a question of like not emphasizing that it's people of color who get hurt first and worst as it is emphasizing that, everyone will be impacted by this no matter what. I think, you know, that I sadly, it seems like one thing we learned with the pandemic is that if people think they're safe, they don't give a shit about other people. Yeah. And, and that's especially true. I think of rich white Americans. Um, So, so I think like emphasizing how much, this will actually impact them too, that this idea that there's some, I don't know, I still think there's such a prevalent escape hatch mentality amongst wealthy people in this country, like that, you know, oh, you can just build a bunker, you can just go to Mars or, you know. Yeah. And just to, to get back to something yeah. I was saying earlier about the pandemic, it's it's not just that, mm-hmm. it's like the escape hatch 
becomes more model of thinking becomes more attractive and makes you feel better about yourself if other people are suffering more. Um, and that's mm. the thing. It's like, it's not just like, well, if we're okay, then I don't care about other people. If we look at what happened in the pandemic, you know, at, at many different points, we failed to take the measures that could have protected, quote unquote, us, like the Americans or whatever, because they would have also protected other people. Mm-hmm. So we're not just doing the bare minimum to secure the like the safety and livelihoods of a small group of people who are judged by the international system to be most important. We're actually not maximizing those people's well-being because maximizing their well-being would mean also doing something to help people living tougher lives elsewhere in the world. And we find that so distasteful yeah. that we'd actually rather live ourselves worse lives, but with a bigger gap between us and everybody else <laughs> than to do something yeah. to help them and reduce that gap, even if it makes us, <sighs> our lives better in, in the end. And I, you know, this is, yeah, this is, it's really scary and really ugly. And I wrote a piece um, yeah. in the fall about, it's a complicated piece that touched on a lot of different things, but it was basically, you know, talking about clim- global climate justice and, and trying to put a number on the debt of climate reparations, among other things. And one of the mm-hmm. points I made just sort of briefly in that piece was, you know, if you take seriously a lot of these projections for end of century warming that have gotten a little bit better over the last couple of years and say, OK, we're probably going to end up somewhere in the two to three degree range, um, then you're literally that's like the temperature level at which. Some northern countries in the world are still going to be benefiting. Um, A lot of the richest countries in the world in the sort of mid-northern latitudes won't be dramatically suffering. They'll be suffering a bit, but they'll, you know, they'll be doing okay. And the global south will just be absolutely destroyed. And that is probably not a coincidence. (laughs) Like, we've engineered a pace of progress that has made that outcome the likeliest outcome, (laughs) not one in which we Mm -hmm. actually, you know, did the most we could to protect the most people in the world and not even the one in which we did the most we could to protect the well-being of the rich people in the world, but the one in which there was the starkest contrast between the fates of the global rich and the global poor is like just about like where, like that's our, that's our bullseye. Like that's where we're probably going to be landing here. And that's just Mm -hmm. so horrifying and awful. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah. I'll say about this idea that, like, we, you know, shouldn't talk about who's getting hurt um, because it'll make people not care. First of all, it's not just rich white people. I know I, I was, we were saying that, but a lot of poor white people are just identify more with their race than they do with their economic status. Right. And I think this is more evidence that we need to tackle white supremacy <laughs> yeah. as opposed to like just well just don't acknowledge the it messaging. just act like yeah. it's not there right like let's <laughs> yeah. just hear no evil see no evil when it comes to white supremacy like we keep kind of come up with these short term solutions to dealing with white supremacy and it right. just like it doesn't work we're not going to be we don't like I think a lot of people think like oh we don't have time to topple white supremacy because climate change is so urgent and the pandemic is so urgent so we have to find these workarounds but actually until you actually deal with it you will never solve any of those problems and it's just like we refuse to learn from reconstruction. <laughs> you know. Right, exactly. Yeah. I mean that was like the whole that was the whole jam with white supremacy was to keep 
um, people out of of class affiliation, right? Like, <laughs> let's let's yeah. like, let's yeah, let's weaponize yeah. this against um, any kind of an uprising. And yeah, we see it right. time and time again, over and over. And you know, it's on some level the pandemic shows us like a, a deepening of the same problem in the sense that in the sense that you know if you think about you know like Peter Singer's model of like the expanding circle of empathy that like this was you know on some level the sort of Western civilization's idea about itself that like over time you know empathy would extend farther and farther from the from the smaller from the smaller um, unit it, until it uh, eventually reached all people on the planet and maybe even all creatures and living things on the planet. That was the sort of like, hmm. you know, conceptual sales pitch um, for like global liberalism or whatever. And it's interesting to hear you're talking, Mary, about white supremacy, which is obviously laced through all of this and is a huge problem here. But it's also the case that like with the pandemic, like there were like rich white people who were looking at other rich white people who were dying and being like, you fucking deserve it. <laughs> yeah. So it's like, our, yeah. yeah. It, it's like we're, rather than like, you know, if, if you were hoping for like an expanding circle of empathy, it feels like in part because we have this because of the pandemic, because of climate change, we have this growing zero sum sense of global cooperation. We're like shrinking that mm-hmm. that circle. That It's not just that we're like not expanding it quickly enough. It's like in a lot of cases, we're making it smaller and smaller so that even partisanship in the U.S. is like functioning in the same spirit that like race and class used to. It's not quite there, mm-hmm. but it's like, it just shows that we are we are regarding each other with like so much disdain and, and animated by so much self-interest that we'll accept so much more suffering and dying, even among the people that, you know, we would have a generation ago, like sort of reflexively yeah. considered. Identified with. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. It's like we can't see the forest for the trees. And, and speaking of trees, do you know how many apples grow on a tree? <laughs> Three? Tree? I don't know. What, what's the answer here? How many? All of them. All of them. <laughs> yeah. So I know that you just mentioned this uh, reporting that you did that showed that Russia was actually the hardest hit um, in terms of these excess death counts. But again, as the war started, we heard that it wasn't the time to talk about climate, wasn't the time to talk about anything but the war, really. So I'm I'm curious, um, I don't know, just what you think, given the context of code deaths and given the context of where we're at with climate, where, like how you think all of this should be kind of understood or filtered through the context of uh, Russia's invasion of Ukraine and the sort of this the war and the way the fossil fuel industry is using the war and all of that stuff. I'm I'm curious for your your thoughts on this big <laughs> global thing that's that's overlaying all of this right now. Well, first I'll mention something I thought of earlier in our conversation but didn't bring up, which is that I see a real clear parallel in the way that the war in the Ukraine has sort of allowed us to quote unquote turn the page on the pandemic to the way that the pandemic invited us to turn the page on climate change. Climate. Oh, interesting. Yeah. And I think that there is this weird psychological dynamic at play at the cultural level and maybe not necessarily at the individual level where like we do seem to have like a hunger for like the next ex- existential story and like mm. in part as a way to start thinking of the last one as like resolved even if that resolution is a terrifying status quo that nobody would have thought was acceptable 
before. And I find it really striking how like all of our major newspapers are like just full of war coverage, which I mean, I don't mean to say it's not important. It's hugely important, but it's like every lead story in every newspaper now every day is about the war in Ukraine. And I'm spending a week with my um, niece and nephew who are um, 10 and seven. And it's like really striking to me how much they are thinking about the war as like the story of our, of this year. And it, Mm. it feels like it's, it's really quite fully penetrated the culture and, you know, often in many ways, like allowed us to stop thinking about the things that we were obsessing over six or nine months ago, which is to say the pandemic. Right. Right. Now, how it all fits into climate change. I mean, there are a lot of ways to talk about that dynamic. And I'd be curious to hear how each of you are thinking about it. But the, the, the few points I would mention are, first of all, I think a really underappreciated feature of this war is that um, it is the act of a autocratic leader of a petro state who is... In, to some degree, watching the world turn away from oil and gas, which have been the lifeblood of his right. country for the entire period of his reign. And mm-hmm. I think there is a sort of like, you know, now or never, shit or get off the pot kind of a Russia may never have the power over the West in particular that it has right now ever again. And five years from now, 10 years from now, if this war happened, would they be making a carve out in their sanctions for um, Russian gas to continue to flow? Don't, <laughs> no. I don't think so. Like, I think that, yep. you know, um, we're in a we're in a, a position now where Putin has considerably more power, I think, on those on those fronts than he would in not even a full generation, but a half generation or so. And I think he probably knows that and understands that. So even, mm. you know, that's the sort of causes of the war. I think there is a climate and energy component to that um, narrative, not to say that it's the only thing that's driving him to war, but it, I think it's part of the mix. And then, you know, there's the like, what does it mean? And how, how are we responding? You know, I think on some level, in the longer term, it could be positive in the sense that I think it is teaching everyone, even the most casual consumer of this sort of news, that continued dependence on fossil fuels is really risky and means that we are in bed with some quite ugly people and some quite ugly regimes. And that it's just a sort of another argument for getting off them um, as quickly as we can, when we can. And, you know, that's not to say that it's going to happen as fast enough for any of our liking, but I do think that the war has, in a sort of medium-term, long-term way, shown us that. The problem is that, like, nobody making decisions is making decisions on a medium- or long-term basis. Like, (laughs) they're all thinking, like, (laughs) very, like, well, the gas price is going up, (laughs) Um, Fuck, yeah. like, we got to scramble to fix that. And yeah. the measures yeah. they've taken to fix that, I think, are really not just like bad on a climate basis, but just bad policy in the sense yes. that like almost yeah. nothing that Joe Biden or the Biden administration has done to quote unquote address this quote unquote crisis actually is mm-hmm. going to reduce the price of gas in the, you know, in like over the next bunch of months. Like it's just, it's all long-term plays. And you're like, that doesn't. I mean, yes, I was looking, I've been just watching this news and I'm like, wow, show me you don't know how gas pricing works without telling me you don't know that how gas pricing works. Like, do you really not understand how this works? (laughs) Because like none of this will have a near-term impact, you know? (sighs) Yeah, it's been very infuriating. That's the position we're in. We're, We're in this global energy 
market. And actually, even though we like produce enough oil, depending on how you want to think of it, we produce enough oil for ourselves. Like we actually can't control the price because it's controlled by all these other, all the way, you know, the market is totally financialized and that's a whole other separate subject. The way that we're living through an era of crisis, I think because so much of our world has been financialized in this way. It's just, they, they're looking for really short-term political plays and they're taking them left and right, even when the cost to their own stated climate goals is, you know, really quite catastrophic, you know, so, and, and it's not just in the U.S., you know, in Europe, you know, they, in a certain way, they're, they're a little bit more under the thumb, under, you know, under Russia's thumb when it comes to energy at the moment, but they could be taking the opportunity to much more quickly renewableize their energy infrastructure. And instead they're like bringing in just, you know, giant tankers of U.S. LNG and essentially continuing their fossil fuel dependence um, rather than taking the crisis as an opportunity to engineer their way out of it. I spoke with someone in in Europe, like a, a youth climate activist who's in Belgium, and and I was saying, you know, there are lots of ways that uh, people could, re- you know, reduce the demand for that energy in, in like fairly painless ways, you know, and, and she said, you would be surprised how many people in all these supposedly socialist European countries are like, I don't want to turn my thermostat down two degrees. That's infringing on my personal freedom. And I was like, no, we've infected the world. <laughs> like, yeah. You know, just thinking about the war in Ukraine, the pandemic and climate change. And one of the things that ties them all together is disinformation. Um, with the war, it's more like disinformation in Russia. But also, like, Russia is all up and through science disinformation in the United States. So it's, like, this interesting kind of confluence. And we were talking earlier about, like, how people are like, well, if you died of COVID, then you deserved it. And it's like, you know, I think a lot of people think that way about unvaccinated people or people in red states. And hello from a red state, Louisiana over here. It's kind of fucked up. But it's also like you leave people's brains to rot watching OAN and Fox News and all of these other things and you do nothing about it, yeah, of course, they're going to start to think some crazy shit. Yeah. I mean, there's a huge disinformation component just from the fossil fuel industry right now, too. I mean, there were letters coming from API and they were having meetings and shit way before Putin actually invaded Ukraine. <laughs> you know, they were they were like, here's the sanctions we're okay with. Here's this. Here's that. So like in a very similar way to COVID, actually, where they were I think as early as as February and March, the API was sending letters to the White House with its kind of wish list of of items for, you know, um, special carve outs and incentives and regulatory rollbacks and things like that. They're they're very, very good at both knowing exactly what to be lobbying for the minute any crisis hits and knowing exactly what message to be pushing out. Because, you know, day one of the invasion, the API was right on top of, you know, how, like, this is why we need U.S. fossil fuels, national security, blah, blah, blah. And honestly, I feel like that narrative really took hold of the mainstream media and has not let let up. Every single time I see folks talking about this. It's like, well, we have to remember but the gas prices though, and we have to make sure that, you know, people aren't being gouged at the pump. And it's like, yeah, but none of these things have anything to do with that. 
Meanwhile, these are these are like a lot of the same people who told you two years ago that the only solution to climate change was a carbon tax. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, it's really gross. <laughs> well, Amy, to get back to your sort of meta perspective, like, you know, not to sound like too, too much of like a, you know, a, like a conspiracy theorist with his like, you know, strings hanging up in his um, closet or whatever, but. Um, Bring it on, David. I, <laughs> I've got my, I got my tinfoil hat this. on right now. I'm ready. Yeah. <laughs> but, you know, like <laughs> the, the, the basic proposition that like our way of life. Uh-huh. is tied up in our large cars and our large highways and our long commuting distances mm-hmm. and our unbelievably irresponsible use of, of fossil fuels compared to even um, countries in the world, elsewhere in the world that are richer than us on a per capita basis. Mm-hmm. That's propaganda. <laughs> yeah. Oh, it's, I mean, it's propaganda created by the fossil fuel industry. Like that's documented. I don't even have to yeah. have, the conspiracy <laughs> is real. You know? Yeah. They, I mean, there's, there's very interesting. In fact, actually just last week, there was a new paper that came out with a bunch of new documents that, um, that really showed how actually even, you know, the whole time right alongside science denial, the industry was saying like, we, we need to hammer on the American way of life the economic impact, like who can we commission to do a study that will say that this, you know, is going to cost American households, you know, X, Y, Z. And, you know, here are the the lifestyle things that we should hammer on. And you still hear it. It's like, you know, they're going to take your burgers and they're going to, you know, do all this stuff. And um, the whole, I don't know, I feel like the, the fossil fuel industry was was actually way more instrumental in shaping what we even think of as the American way of life than I think most people know. And so instrumental that, you know, we actually now have to deal with those cultural biases, not as though they're just inventions, but like they're now real. Totally. Like I think that, that, um, that is maybe one of, if not the biggest, blocker to climate action is this like this really deeply rooted idea that your life will be materially worse if you don't have those things. Um, and, and yes, systems that make it so, you know, <laughs> cause like there are a lot of places in the country where if you can't drive or, um, don't have a big car, uh, your life is harder, you know, and they have, have kind of weighed in on that too. But yeah, it's, oh, the other thing I I just want to note too on the, the disinformation front is that a lot of the same exact people and organizations were pushing COVID disinformation that pushed climate disinformation for a long time. I have like a little group of these weird fringy like lone wolf climate denier dudes that like kind of no one takes seriously but they're good bellwethers for whatever the like new crazy theory is gonna be from that from the right on um why we shouldn't do anything about climate and i saw them starting to tweet stuff about um covid regulations being an infringement on personal freedom and all of this stuff and it reminded me so much of like there's all this documentation of how much the fossil fuel industry was freaking out at the end of World War II. And like, they were just like, oh my God, you know, 
people have gotten used to the government being involved in setting prices and like, right. you know, <laughs> like being involved in markets and, and, you know, the government's done a good job of actually taking care of people. And what are we going to do? All hands on deck. We have to like make sure to remind people that capitalism and the free market system is the most important thing. It is the thing that makes us American. It is the thing that makes us free. And it's like, that same messaging came up in all the COVID stuff. And now you see it in all of this, um, you know, kind of discussion about fossil fuels with respect to to Russia and, you know, American independence and national security and all this stuff. It's like the thing that they go back to over and over and over again. Um, and it feels yeah. really hard to change. Yeah. <laughs> you know? Yeah, But to, to go back to something we're, you know, it's a theme we've been talking about throughout this conversation. It's like, you know, it's also the case that the energy pinch here is like much going to be much deeper in Europe than in the U.S. Way. And, yeah. and even those countries, which, again, you know, on like an ethnic basis, we like, quote unquote, identify with and like a cultural basis. We have like, quote unquote, affinities for like even then we're like, we're not even that interested in that story as Americans. No, not at all. <laughs> Yeah. Our gas prices now are like what Europeans pay or like less than what Europeans pay at the pump normally. And we're like, six dollars. You know what I mean? <laughs> it's like I understand that like part of that is because so many people are living in such tight financial circumstances oh, that a couple more dollars a gallon is a very meaningful difference. And it's going it's making the price of groceries go up and all of those kinds of things. But, yeah, we're not no one is like those poor Germans, you know. <laughs> well, last yeah. question before I let you go is so climate change is definitely going to bring more pandemics. Yeah, we've been talking a lot about how this pandemic influenced climate change, but also like the permafrost uh, is probably going to melt. Um, heard a lot about this ice sheet that broke pretty recently. Feel like we're always hearing about some ice sheet breaking off in the Arctic. Do we feel like we've learned anything going forward? Well, I'm coming out of the pandemic, just dis- or quote unquote coming mm-hmm. out of the pandemic mm-hmm. more dispirited than I certainly was at the beginning. But I'm trying to remember those feelings of measured hope that I had right at the outset, thinking that institutions we had assumed for so long were unmovable showed themselves actually to be Mm -hmm. quite movable and quite nimble. Now, Mm -hmm. we also learned what it takes to move them and what motivates that movement. And it doesn't necessarily line up perfectly with the climate agenda. But I think it is on some level still, you know, worth keeping in mind as we dwell in despair on how much worse our global management of the pandemic would have, you know, was than, than it might have been. And, you know, the one, la- one, point I, one other point I would add about that is just that, you know, the vaccines are really pretty incredible, just as like a technological innovation. Mm -hmm. And they also show us that it's not just the innovation that's important. It's also Mm -hmm. the rollout, um, you know, the the provisions, the support, you know, all that stuff. But, you know, a few years ago, I might've thought that one challenge we had in in trying to deal with climate change was just how um, stalled a lot of our culture and culture of innovation seemed to be. And I do think that there's a way of looking at what's happened and thinking, 
at least in some sectors, there's like a lot going on, you know, and biotech is really, they're doing a lot of incredible things. Um, the mRNA vaccines really could open up a whole new horizon, you know, of medical treatment for cancer and tons of other stuff. So I think it's like a, it's a sort of a mixed lesson, but I could, I, you know, when I try to take it all in and like come to a sort of single conclusion, the thing I always come back to is the thing I started with today was, it's just, you know, we had the chance to protect the world and instead we only chose to protect ourselves. And that's when you're facing down future pandemics or you're facing down, you know, worsening climate change, you know, it's a recipe for disaster and a moral indictment of anyone who's who's failed to push for more. Yeah. I'll say that I think that, you know, there's a lot I could say that's dispiriting, but I'll try to leave with the one good thing that I think comes out of the pandemic was it? I think we realize the importance of community. I don't think everybody's doing the right things with their need for community coming out. You know, some people are out here building up militias. <laughs> you know, but the rest of us could do better things with the need for community. Like we understand how important it is. And that is one of the most important things for coping with climate change and and actually doing something about it is understanding that we need each other. I don't know. What about you, Amy? Same. You took my community point. Yes, totally. Same. Same. That's the one thing that I'm like, well, I did actually see just in my own very small part of the world, uh, people actually helping each other out in a, in a sort of person to person way that I haven't actually seen in my life in the U S. So that gave me a tiny bit of, um, you know, kind of, okay, well, maybe people are, are starting to figure this out. It's also like the only kind of climate wins I've seen recently are in, are in like yeah. local community kind of ways. So I think, I think that, um, oh, and actually I thought of another thing when you were talking about the nature stuff and how for, for a brief moment, people did kind of get this window into how much we are sort of, you know, aggressively dominating nature all the time. I have seen a shift in the climate movement away from um, the idea that it is silly or naive, I don't know, like feminine in some some areas to yeah. care about nature. I think that that was like a real overcorrection in the climate space um, to, you know, I, there was a definite need to focus, you know, move away from yeah. polar bears to people. But I think there's been a bit of an overcorrection in, in recent years to yeah. being like, fuck nature. And I don't think that's healthy either. So I feel like we have maybe become a bit healthier about our relationship to nature. <laughs> so wait, you so Amy, you're no longer an eco-modernist? Is that what you're saying? Um, yes. I, <laughs> I have officially removed my name from the eco-modernist manifesto. <laughs> yeah. Well, I'll actually add one more thing, and that is I think it became a lot more normal to be alarmed about stuff. You know, like before it was like, if you freaked out in public, you were considered hysterical. You were considered an alarmist. Like, David, you dealt with that when you published um, Uninhabitable Earth. And now it's kind of like, yeah, no, maybe we should be scared of scary things. <laughs> True. I think that's healthy. True. It is healthy. Although I do, I, I share, um, David, your concern that <laughs> we didn't see a lot of great social stuff coming out of the pandemic i would you know my, I, I i see both it's like i think what you guys are saying about community um i i mean that's all there too 
Um, it's just really messy. And I think just to not to like impose another lesson on, on this like high, high pile of lessons we're like um, throwing here in the end, but like, you know, I think we have a tendency to really think about a lot of these challenges in mm-hmm. really, yeah, really misleadingly binary ways. So we think like, I mean, when it comes to climate, you know, either in yeah. overly apocalyptic ways or in overly Apollyanna ways. And with, you know, with, with the pandemic, it's like, are we going overboard or um, do we need to be way more restricted? It's just like, we are living because of so much disruption and mismanagement and social disorder. We are living in a world of complication and uncertainty and in that messy muddle. And I don't see a very good path through that, but I also don't look at the pandemic or about or climate these days and think um, I see a neat story of total disaster. I see a messy story in which there's a lot of good and a lot of encouraging stuff going on too. It's just, you know, in, in both cases, not sufficient to overcome um, the negative forces, at least not yet. Right. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Awesome. All right. We will release you <laughs> Thank to you bedtime. Thank you so much for coming Thank on, you. David. <laughs> thanks. Thank you. Oh, my God. It was really a pleasure. I hope we get to catch up again soon. So thanks again for yes, having me. And, and yeah. good luck with the new gig. We, we're excited yeah. to read your stuff. Thank over you there. very much. I'll, um, I'll be okay. thinking of you as I'm writing. <laughs> Have a good night. <laughs> Thank you. Bye, Talk guys. to you soon. Hot Take is a Crooked Media production. It's produced by Ray Pang and mixed and edited by Jules Bradley. Our music is by Vasilis Fotopoulos. Thamali Kodakara is our consulting producer. And our executive producers are Mary Anais Hegler, Michael Martinez, and me, Amy Westervelt. Special thanks to Sandy Gerard, Ari Schwartz, Kyle Seglin, and Charlotte Landis for production support and to Amelia Montooth for digital support. You can follow the show on Twitter at Real Hot Take, sign up for our newsletter at hottakepod.com, and subscribe to Crooked Media's video channel at youtube.com slash crooked media. You just heard an episode of Hot Take. Thanks to the team at Crooked Media for sharing it with us. You can and should subscribe to Hot Take, you know, wherever you get your podcasts. As for Seen on Radio, our website is seenonradio.org. You can follow me on Twitter at Seen on Radio. More to come in our summer mini-series. Our show comes to you from the Center for Documentary Studies at Duke University.